Hey, it's Jason Flatland here. You're listening to The Jason Flatland Show, where I'll be sharing everything from sales and webinar tips to improving productivity and reaching your infinite potential. Once upon a time, we were responsible for 40% of a product launch that did $25 million. Just who we were as a representative of this product, selling it in the marketplace, is a lot of money. It's a big piece of that pie. And one of the ways in which we were able to accomplish this is because of my very intimate understanding of what I call decision-making frameworks. And on this video here today, I want to break them down for you. My name is Jason Flatland. I've done over a quarter billion dollars on webinars. They call me the webinar go. And whether I'm doing a webinar or creating a whole marketing campaign to take over an industry, I'm looking at it through the perspective of decision-making frameworks, specifically how the market makes its decisions, whether it's going to buy something or not. Now, the foundation of this decision-making framework comes from a single solitary question that I learned back in the day when I used to study a lot of neuro-linguistic programming. And the question is this, how do you know that? So instead of asking why or asking what, ask the how question. And there's so many subtle flavors of how do you know that? So even if somebody says something to me and I don't ask them in my head, I hear that phrase pop in, that question, how do you know that? So somebody, if I'm seeing that they're afraid to try something because they'll fail, I'm thinking, how do they know they'll fail? Because a lot of people are certain that they'll fail. How do you know you're going to fail? How do you know you won't succeed? How do you know that you won't be lucky this time? How do you know that you won't stumble upon this sooner rather than later? I'm always thinking like that. And I'm not saying you will. I'm just saying, how do you know that you are unlikely to make this work? There's a decision-making process that's happening, and it's mostly automated. How did you know what shirt to wear today? It's a good question to ask somebody. They go, most people do. So second one is, like, if I notice people are scared, how do you know when to be scared? Because are you scared all the time? Do you wake up in the morning and set a watch and say, it's time to get scared at 7.01 a.m.? There's a period of time where you're not scared, and then you become scared. So if you're afraid to outreach to somebody to start up into a new conversation that might turn them into a client, a lot of people are scared. How do you know when to be scared? Is it a certain period of time before you call that person? Is it after you hear their voice? I want to know that. And there's actually a process underneath this all. Whether you realize it or not, everything has a decision-making framework attached to it. Most of it's done automated and unconscious. And if we can bring some consciousness, we can change things. When customers tell me that costs too much, how do you know that that costs too much? Like, are you an expert at pricing? <laughs> Somebody says to me, I, I need to think it over. How do you know when you thought it over long enough? Again, is it a certain amount of thinking that needs to be involved? Do you have to ask a certain amount of questions that people say, I don't know. I've never thought about that. They actually have. They just don't realize that there's an automated decision-making system that's running. There's a process that runs before you do anything that you do. That shirt you put on in the morning, there was an underlying logic to it. The method in which you organize your process has a process that is underpinning it underneath of it. Sometimes we're aware of how we make decisions, but more often we are not aware of how we make decisions. But if we can bring consciousness into an unconscious situation, we can move markets. At the core of it, first principle thinking here, when faced with a choice, there are only three options you or I or anybody in any market can make. There are three choices. Yes, no, or maybe. That's it. And guess which one? This is no. This would be yes. I'm not going to do the other one. <laughs> but that's how I feel about the maybe. The maybe is the middle finger to you because it doesn't help you and it doesn't help your audience. And so I need to help people make a decision. And I'm okay with a no decision. I love a yes decision if you're the right fit. I like a no decision, especially if you're the wrong fit. But I hate 
capital H-A-T-E, I hate a maybe because you get stuck in the state of uncertainty. So you don't make a decision, which is not good for you because there's no movement, and you feel all sorts of bad things about it. So they create the tension and anxiety around it as well. So if you understand how someone on a one-to-one basis or a market, some ones on a one-to-many basis makes their decisions, the better you can help them make the best decision for them. So let's break down some of the ways in which we use decision-making frameworks. I always like to think in terms of questions. So oftentimes I have this other question that I use a lot too. Is there anything I can do or say that would get you to buy today? (laughs) That's a good close, by the way. And I think about this like when I'm working with people individually or I'm on a live webinar and I say, there's a whole bunch of you on here and you're still asking questions and I'm curious to you and I'll be happy to answer more of these questions, but I'm just curious to you right now. Is there anything I could do or say That would help you make a decision whether to buy this thing or not today. And sometimes people will tell you, yeah, I really need to know about this, which is fascinating because they will ask 50 other questions. But when you ask this tie down question, then they'll some some of them will tell you exactly what they need to hear because they'll go on and on about price, this price, that price, this price, that. But then when you ask this question, they'll say, well, hold on a second. Here's what I really need. You're like, oh, okay," And it's not their fault. They need to be pointed in the right direction to ask the right question. And if you're in person with an audience, it's even better because you can see the nonverbal communication, not just the verbal communication. I've, I've done this enough times through the years that if I ask that question to somebody personally or even in a room, I know immediately the answer before they even tell me just on the body language alone. And this is really useful if you do sales calls and you're doing them in person because you can bounce out right away. If you can tell that there's nothing you can do or say that's going to have that person make a decision today, then you leave <laughs> as soon as you possibly can And so then this goes back to the other decision-making framework question I said earlier, when somebody says, I need to think it over, my internal thought immediately goes, well, what specifically do you need to think over? How do you know when you've thought it over enough? Is it a thinking it over or is it a feeling it over? When do you think and when do you feel to make decisions? And then you play with all of these. Now, it's very important when you do this at scale, even individually, the micro always proves the macro for these things. But on a macro level, I want to have a toolbox of different questions that I can reach for in the toolbox to help people make a decision, whether it's a yes decision or a no decision, because I know they're going to be mostly stuck in maybe. And so I have all sorts of questions that can probe them to look at things from different perspectives to gain insights that can help them narrow down that yes decision or that no decision. So having done this a lot and obsessed over this even more, I've uncovered a lot of these little weird, interesting decision-making frameworks, uh, the commonalities, I should say, of these frameworks over the years. And I don't think a lot of people are tapped into these. So here's what I know. When somebody's making a yes or a no or a maybe decision, most of the ways in which they make decisions are primarily rooted in self-preservation to a fault. Uh, The other day I overheard this conversation. It went this way. Somebody said, I was only planning on being a driver for six months, and 23 years later, I'm still doing it. So this was some sort of, uh, it was like one of those chauffeur services that this person worked for. So they were just going to do it for six months, and then 23 years went by. And that person doesn't even want to do what they're doing anymore, but self-preservation keeps them stuck doing it. So they still make the decision every day to continue to do what they're doing, or they don't make any decision and they let nature take its course and they just they made a decision once 23 years ago and they've stuck with it. And they're miserable as a result because it's better to be miserable and know what to expect tomorrow than to maybe not be miserable but not know what to expect tomorrow. So when I'm designing and communicating to markets solutions, 
I'm trying to design solutions that require the least amount of change on the user's end to get a better result, especially initially. Long term, I want them to change many things, and they probably will need to change many things in order to have holistic staying power in terms of the effectiveness of whatever solution that I'm selling. But short term, I'm like, what is the least amount of change somebody can enact to get a better result? So I approach the market knowing full well they are going to work against themselves and their own best interests for self-preservation. And I account for that variable in all my communication, my marketing, my positioning, and everything. I go, people are going to self-preserve to a fault. Instead of swimming upstream against that, let me swing downstream with that to keep as much of who they are currently as an identity intact, but subtly change one or two things that seem insignificant to them but make all the difference. The other thing I've learned is decisions create identities, and from identities, belief patterns flow. Now, these belief patterns, I don't care what they are, every single belief pattern has limitations. There's another NLP saying that, or it wasn't said in NLP, but they made it popular, the map is not the territory. Our goal is to create maps that have as little information of them on them as possible so they're the easiest to read but are the most accurate as they possibly can be. So my friend Alex Hermosi does this better than anybody that I know is he simplifies things down so, so simple without sacrificing or sacrificing as little as possible the actual integrity of the thing. Because every success is a study of nuances. It really, truly is. We, we go out here and we wax poetic about the simplicities of it, but we're creating models or maps of territories that are way super complicated. And it's hard to simplify something and keep the integrity of it intact. So, you know, calories in, calories out is a simplification that is kind of useful when it comes to maintaining or losing weight, but it sacrifices so much nuance and it can be dangerous around the edge cases. And so what happens is we want to be able to navigate the world, so we simplify it. But then we have these blind spots or these limitations, if you will. So all patterns have limits. All belief patterns have limitations. And if we can break a limitation, we can create a new opportunity. So if we can delink this automatic process, when this happens, I say no. Or when this happens, I get stuck. And maybe then we have hope. We have opportunity. So think about it from this way. If somebody's failed 100 times before, at doing something. They continue to show up because they're interested in doing something, but they keep failing over and over again. Logically speaking, why would this be different? Why? It would be irrational to believe that if you failed a hundred times before, that somehow the hundred and first time you will be successful. But you could argue, I believe, just as accurately argue the inverse. Each failure can bring you one step closer to a success. You know, they say past performance is not predicting future performance, right? The past doesn't predict the future. If that's true on the negative side, which is how everybody talks about it, it's got to be true on the positive side as well. Past performance doesn't predict the future, and that's true even if you failed every single time you've tried to do that. The fact is every single time you've tried before has created more experience from you, and through experience you can draw wisdom. Maybe you failed 100 times before because 100 times you tried to open the door with the wrong key. So if you give a new key, then it doesn't matter if you tried the old way a thousand times and failed. You didn't have the right key. So these are things that I observe in the market that their belief is that because I failed, I am a failure. And even though I want this thing and I keep getting pulled towards it, I'm hesitant to try it because I will probably fail again. Because history has shown me that I have failed repeatedly at this topic. So if we don't counteract that, 
the decision-making framework is I try stuff and I fail. Therefore, if I try this, I'll fail again. So I'm hesitant to try it. I want it, but I'm afraid I'll fail. So I don't make a decision at all. I get stuck in maybe. The other one is, especially with money, when you're related to teaching anything financial, people typically that are attracted to it, they're currently broke. They have a history of being broke. Their family was always broke. And so not only are they broke, they're broken. Woe is me. (laughs) And one of the ways in which I'll work with a market like that is I'll say, if we limit the definition of broke to only a number in your bank account, I think that's very narrow of a perspective. Maybe you're broke specifically financially, but perhaps we can find wealth in other ways beyond just the finances. And we can do an examination with that. So we can unlink this behavior pattern or this belief pattern that because I don't have money, I'm broke. And if I'm broke, then I'm not worthful. I'm not worth something. I'm worthless. And so therefore, it's incompatible for me to have money. So I have to go to work on that to change the decision-making framework there for somebody who's fallen into that belief pattern. So if I could say, well, in what ways are you wealthy? Ooh, okay, let's take a look at that. I'm sure we can find in almost any human being certain uncovered wealth. And then if we could say, if you're wealthy over there, what attributes over there can we apply to this situation over here? Or in fact, I could also argue that because you're broke, that hunger of being broke perhaps is a stronger motivator than somebody who's just getting by. They're not broke yet. They don't have the benefit of being broke. So therefore, they don't have as much leverage to pay attention to this as you do. Maybe you're richer than you give yourself credit for because you're enriched in the desire to change your situation that is unique to people that are in your current position. And that's allows somebody to look at the opportunity from a different perspective, and then they can make a different decision. So imposter syndrome is another one that limits most people. They say, I'm an imposter. I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough. I'm a fraud. I haven't been exposed yet, but I will be exposed one day. The repositioning of that is, hey, listen, we're all trying to figure out who we are and who we're not. And who we were doesn't have to be who we will be. No matter how you're feeling, can you see the opportunity inside you to grow? Can you be an imposter and still help other people over a period of time? My point, and hopefully it doesn't get lost on you or because I've kind of weighed it down. Remember, let's go back to the original premise here. And the original premise is any belief pattern can be broken. All belief patterns create limitations and any belief pattern can be broken. And so uh, even successful ones, people think, oh, I'm super good and I'm really confident. And then they get into situations where they screw themselves up because they have too much hubris. We want to break those patterns as well. Success patterns are as just as dangerous as failure patterns can be. Most important is to recognize that all patterns have limits and then work within that as the calculus of when you're making decisions. So what ultimately comes down to is at the basis of it is I can't do X because of Y. This is the meta pattern, if you will. So markets or individuals in those markets, they're going to make decisions, mostly maybe decisions. I can't do X because of Y. I want to do Y, but I can't because of X. So I don't make a decision, yes or no, and I get stuck in the middle. And then ultimately what you do is you show how that logic is faulty. Or even better, you show that it doesn't matter whether that logic is true or not. So how is this time different than the times before it? How does this not matter whether or not you actually have this limitation or not. And my favorite is how can we turn this into a benefit? Somebody says, Jason, I don't have the experience. Good. Then you're not ruined. You haven't been taught all the ways to do it wrong. So we don't have to overcome all of the bad programming. We can start with a blank slate. That's the positive benefit of lack of experience. 
If somebody says, I don't have much money, good. Now you can be resourceful, not just rely on resources. If I had to choose between the two, I'd rather you be resourceful than be full of the resource that is money. Now it's ideal if you have both, but if you had to pick one, I would rather be resourceful than just have a lot of resources on hand. And my belief pattern is I absolutely believe that any position has within it strength and weakness, and our goal is to unlock the strength in the position and to limit the weakness. So bottom line is this. When you're looking at a market, and this is why we said at the beginning, 40% of a $25 million pie. That's how I frame that. Because I would sit there and obsess in that market. This is how we were able to collect so much of this market, selling the same thing as everybody else to that market, thousands of competitors. How are we able to just run circles around everybody else? Because I kept asking that question. This person still hasn't made a decision to buy this thing or not. What do they need to hear that they haven't heard? that will help them make a decision, whether that's yes or whether that's no. What are they missing that if they were able to hear it would make the difference? And then you get so many shots at that. Is it this? You try it out and you discover some of them that is what it was, but not everybody else. So now let me try that. And for that, some of them say yes, but not everybody else. And they say, let me try that. And then what happens if you do this enough, not only does this work for individual campaigns, but then you develop these patterns as well. And then you learn, oh, okay, this is like that time over there. And now you get these tools in your toolkit and they just keep expanding, expanding, expanding. And they help people refine in the market their decision-making process. Because if they always continue to make decisions the way they have, they're always going to continue to get what they got. And your job is to take the limits and unlimit those limits by giving them different perspectives. And so they can make a decision. Otherwise, they're going to gravitate towards maybe and they're going to get stuck in indecision. And then they're going to suffer from the disease of indecision. So let's give them the cure. Try that on. Let me know how it plays for you. I'll see you in the next video. Hey, Jason Flyland here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you found this helpful at all, please leave me a review. And thanks again and stay tuned for future episodes.